I had, of course, heard people say the sky was beautiful, especially those who were as far away as Fuchu and Furichi. But it was now for the first time that I could picture the cloud sharply defined against a clear blue August sky. It was at the moment of the birth of this cloud with its ever-changing color that Hiroshima was wiped out. It was at this moment that Hiroshima City, the culmination of many years' work, disappeared with her good citizens into the beautiful sky. Nat, we're here with a darker but uplifting in some ways as well. In some ways. Uh, episode of Made You Think. Yeah, we're today we're discussing Hiroshima Diary by Michihiko Hachiya. And this is very different from a lot of the other books that we've covered so far. It's definitely not a uh, how-to type of book where there's a <laughs> key takeaway or yeah. learning to do something. But yeah, I'd wanted to read this book for a while. I actually visited Hiroshima this summer, this past summer, so 2017. And, uh, you know, they obviously have a really nice memorial and museum there. And this is one of the books that they were highlighting at the museum. So I've kind of had it on my list since then. And it's very interesting. Like the backstory of this book is very interesting, too, where it was in Japanese. It was, a, it was basically a physician's diary from the days following the Hiroshima atomic bomb. And uh, it's just interesting the journey it took to even get it translated to English. There's something in the in the intro to the book, which was kind of like pretty shameful of the u.s even yeah i was surprised by what he was describing i have literally in my kindle notes this part highlighted and i my note on it was wtf question mark exclamation mark (laughs) where so you know the backstory is in the 90s so this version of the book that we're reading was published in 95 and in the early 90s the smithsonian thought it had been long enough where it'd be worth it to kind of do an exhibit which focused on kind of the human costs of the atomic bomb. And I mean, this is amazing because the U.S. Senate never does anything unanimously. Yeah. But the quote I've highlighted here is the U.S. Senate unanimously approved a resolution condemning the Smithsonian for failing to celebrate the manner in which the atomic bombs had brought the war to a merciful end. That's pretty shitty. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Like you can't show. I mean, a lot of people, as we've talked about, I think elsewhere in the podcast, like a lot of people have trouble holding two competing ideas in their brain, but this is kind of like taking that to a new level. Like you can say that the atomic bombs brought World War II to an end. Yeah, I can see the argument for like, okay, it prevented a land invasion and you know, you don't, maybe it would have in the long run, it saved some lives. So you can, you can simultaneously hold that argument and still say it had a terrible human cost. Yeah. Uh, those are not mutually exclusive things. I mean, it's similar to the argument we're having right now around drone strikes, mm. right? Yeah. It's what 80% of casualties from drone strikes are civilians and mm. like innocents that aren't the actual targets, but it prevents, you know, having, just having to go in. Yeah. Right? And so that's where it gets complicated. It's like, well, you know, what's better, right? Putting, you know, more of our people at risk or more of their people at risk or, you know, like how do you balance that out? And you can believe in both. Right. And then it (laughs) kind of comes down to this like waiting, but it's so strange that in 95, the Senate would condone the Smithsonian just for putting on an exhibit about this. Literally 50 years after World War II was over. (laughs) And to be clear, it's not like the Smithsonian is saying like, the atom bomb was bad, right? The U.S. is war criminals, (laughs) right? They're saying, hey, a lot of people died from this thing. Yeah, and let's look at the human cost of that side of it. Yeah, and share some of that story. Yeah, of what the Japanese went through. And I mean, you, as we'll get into as we get more into the diary, it's like, We have a tendency in general humans, not just Americans, but in general humans have this tendency to look at others as this monolith like kind of group like, oh, the Japanese or the Americans or the British or, you know, like we just group people together. 
But if you read in the diary, I had no idea until reading this that like there's a lot of internal resentment against the Japanese military establishment. Yeah, I didn't know that either. Yeah, like they viewed the emperor as like their true leader and then the military generals like Tojo and people like that as being um, kind of like having tricked the emperor into allowing the war to happen. Yeah, it sounded like there were these two competing powers. Yeah. It didn't sound like, you know, in the U.S., the president's, you know, commander in chief, right, right? Right. And they're partially supposed to be the ones leading the military. It sounded like at least in Japan at the time, it was almost split where you had the emperor on one side and you had the military generals on the other. And at least from Hachiya's point of view, it seemed like, you know, they all loved the emperor and respected him. And then the military was off doing their thing. Right. For their own power. For their own power. Yeah. And we'll come back to this later. But even after Japan surrenders, the military keeps attacking. Right. Because it's, you know, it's almost a separate because the emperor is the one who surrendered. Exactly. He's the one who announces the surrender. But then there's still attacks going on against, you know, whatever Russian-American troops are nearby, I guess Korean as well. Yeah. And Hachi is basically saying like, well, that's just what the military does, right? right? It's like they almost don't trust them, which I thought was... I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know that. It was interesting. I didn't realize it was this separate sort of thing. And then I guess it kind of makes sense because it's like in the same way that if you go to another country, maybe not so much anymore, but maybe like 10 years ago. uh, Yeah, maybe about 10 years ago. Like people would always think Americans are the ones who are all behind like the Iraq war. But it's not true. Like living in this country, you know that like it was such a split kind of decision to go to war, you know, to do that invasion. It wasn't like everybody in the country was like, yeah, let's go to war. Right. It was very split. It's a good way of putting it. But to the outsider, they might think, well, it's all Americans who must have been behind it. Exactly. Um, So it might be similar, right? Where like there even it was maybe there was a faction that was pro-war and a faction that was anti-war but i mean regardless of all that this diary just shows like a lot of the human cost of war and you know that's one side of it but then the other side is like how resourceful humans are yeah and what we're capable of surviving yeah it's, it's a was, remarkable story <laughs> yeah i mean i guess for a little bit of background right hachio was a doctor working in hiroshima at the time and it was sort of i, I didn't know for the government actually. yeah it was for the yeah. government it was at like a what telecommunications yeah, bureau, communications bureau communications bureau hospital yep. and hiroshima was a military outpost because it had really good water access i guess yeah. and so there were a lot of military stationed there and he was working for the military as a doctor mostly yeah. and then everybody working in the communications area and like a few of the other bureaus they had stationed around the city and the diary basically starts with the bomb dropping right away on the first page basically yeah. he's because that's when he started doing the diary basically yeah <laughs> he started recording things right and and this is also part of why the book is so cool is and not like boring is the wrong word but it has these very slow progressions on certain yeah. things and we're going to get into a few of them well later. he wasn't even looking to get this thing published right it was more just for himself and it just became something that i guess was interesting to the outside world and and i think that's what makes it so interesting is that when you compare it to any book written about the events in retrospect there's going to be some natural narrative fallacy and whatnot that happens (laughs) whereas with this this is you know at least i think and it seems it's been presented this way that this is literally you know his diary from the events so there's a few interesting things that come up but yeah it just starts where he literally like he had gotten hurt in the bombing. Yeah, he gets hurt. The, the yeah. bomb goes off and he's in his house. Yeah. And then just returning from a shift. <laughs> yeah, he yeah. just got back from the hospital. And to be clear, like pretty much everybody outside died. Yeah. Not so much by him. 
I think where he was, people outside weren't killed immediately, yeah. but you'd be really injured. Uh, but well, he basically, it's really interesting the various types of injuries too that can happen, right? Because it's like some of it's shrapnel because just the bomb blast is so big. Yeah. But then some of it is like if you were blocked by, I want to say concrete, mm-hmm. the radiation, radiation didn't, get to didn't get to you. So you, you wouldn't get the burns. Yeah. But so if you're outside, you could well, you would have gotten you could still get the burns, but you, you wouldn't get the radiation. Yes, right. There was the fire. Yeah. And there was the radiation. Yeah, because then there were fires too. Yeah. Yep. And this is one of the more interesting parts of the book is that they didn't know what right. the bomb was. So that's why it's all, so that's why it's all hindsight where we think that or in when accounts are written in hindsight, we obviously talk about radiation and all this stuff. For them, it was a mystery. It took them about a month to figure out that radiation had anything to do with their symptoms. Yep. So throughout the book, it's this ongoing mystery of, you know, why are these people dying? Why are they getting these uh, these different like illnesses? Or they or, seem to have no visible wounds. But Exactly. Then, How yep. come people who have, you know, no burns are suddenly dying and people who have tons of burns are getting better, right? And that was some of that difference where you could get hit by the fire but get blocked from the radiation right. and you'd actually recover pretty well right but you could also not get hit by the fire but then get blasted with radiation and you'd be done for or in hachia's case when he wakes up basically because he gets knocked out by the blast yep. and he, when he comes to he's completely naked all of his clothes right. been burned off right. yeah. from the blast and he's just like covered in wounds from glass right. so it's a shrapnel kind of like injuries yeah because all his windows blew out yeah right? uh, it says later in the book he had 150 scars yeah right it's crazy and so he, he wakes up from this, and fortunately for him, he lived 200 meters from the hospital that he was working at. So he basically comes to, <laughs> grabs his wife, and starts running over to the hospital. Yeah. And both of them are just like, all of their clothing and everything is burned off. Their house is pretty much torn down. Yeah. They're full of like glass, shrapnel. Uh, he's apparently got some huge piece sticking out of his legs, yeah. so he can like barely walk. Uh, although I think... I think he collapsed, right? Yeah, he collapses near the hospital yeah. and they have to come get him. Yeah. Uh, but also, it's like complete badass move. He's got this huge piece of glass in his leg. He just rips it out yeah. <laughs> and like keeps running to the hospital, which is awesome. There's one part that reminded me of maybe denial of death or maybe something else that we'd done where this quote's from the book where uh, there's this guy, this other doctor, Dr. Katsube, is, Katsube. Okay. I think is the one who helped treat him yeah. when he got to the hospital. And I think he was getting impatient that he had to be in like a bed or whatever. Oh, yeah, so yeah. the doctor goes, you were too impatient. He said, you should be thankful that you were going to live. Then he responds that I might die had never even crossed my mind. But now that Dr. Katsube had spoken so bluntly, I realized that I must have been hurt worse than I thought. So it's like, it's kind of interesting. It's like you never think you're even if people are dying all around you. Yeah, I guess you never it never crosses your mind that you might also die. It's like that's other people exactly you know, other people yeah. are gonna get knocked out from and this. he's a doctor so he yeah. does this all the time like so he should know yeah but it's, it's very interesting the descriptions that he gives as everyone's reeling from the blast are pretty terrifying yeah uh there's this long section where he's walking to the hospital with his wife i'll just read from it i feel like we're gonna have to read from a lot of sections of the book this episode because there's so much like beautiful and terrifying language mm-hmm. that we wouldn't do it justice to yeah, figure exactly. it out, to say it ourselves. So this is when he's just starting to go to the hospital and he says, gradually things around me came into focus. There were the shadowy forms of people, some of whom looked like walking ghosts. Others moved as though in pain, like scarecrows, their arms held out from their bodies with forearms and hands dangling. These people puzzled me until I suddenly realized that they had been burned and were holding their arms out to prevent the painful friction of raw surfaces rubbing together. A naked woman carrying a naked baby came into view. I averted my gaze. 
Perhaps they had been in the bath. But then I saw a naked man, and it occurred to me that, like myself, some strange thing had deprived them of their clothes. An old woman lay near me with an expression of suffering on her face, but she made no sound. Indeed, one thing was common to everyone I saw, complete silence. Yeah, I mean, it literally sounds like hell. Yeah, everyone's walking around in a literal zombied pose because your entire body is burnt, so you don't want any of it to touch each other or any parts of it to touch each other. And nobody is saying anything. They're just kind of mindlessly walking towards wherever they think they should be going. There's this description later, too, of everyone fleeing Hiroshima. Yeah, because they thought that poison gas... Yeah, the poison gas, but also right after the blast, Mm -hmm. right, where I I don't remember who was describing it. I'm not sure I have the line here, but basically just thousands of people walking single file silently out of the city to the next city and not even following the road or anything, just following these odd beaten paths, just blindly following the person in front of them. Yeah. Just no thought to it. It's like everything just got turned off upstairs. You're not thinking anymore. You're just reacting whatever way you can yeah and it's just like how would you react in that kind of a situation it's just like unthinkable yeah right it's like truly unthinkable about like what would you do in that kind of a situation yeah well it reminds Uh, me of emergency yeah it's like you don't rise to the occasion you rise to the level of your training yeah and nobody here had been trained to react to something like this no i mean there was no other atomic bomb ever until this one and they're they're confused for the whole first month or so yeah. about, you know, how could this much destruction have happened? Nobody, obviously, uh, they'd seen bombs before, but you'd see planes dropping dozens and dozens of bombs to do anything close to this amount of damage. Yeah. The idea that just one thing could do it, right, was wild. a terrifying thought. Yeah. And then, I mean, there had been poison gas before this. So to their mind, that was the first thing that, you know, they thought maybe it's a biological agent or some type of chemical agent, but... Like he kind of treats and we'll get into this even more, but he kind of uses a lot of like the scientist way of thinking. Right. And is like sort of looking at different hypotheses and like doing research and trying to figure out like he even looks at um, starts looking at people's like white blood cell counts or no, I think was it because people's blood wasn't clotting that he start That's what gave him the clue to like start looking at like during the autopsies, like looking at people's blood. Well, th- I mean, there were a few problems. They didn't have the microscope. For right. Forever. They didn't even have a microscope for a while yeah, yeah. because they all got destroyed at right. last. Yep. So I don't think they get a microscope no for the first couple of weeks. There's no telephone lines no. or anything. So they don't have a way to get word out. No electricity. And then on top of that, they don't even do autopsies for the first couple of weeks right. because well, there were just so many deaths, right? So there was this mass cremations that they had to do. So many people dying and there's no lighting. So they didn't really have a good way to do it indoors. They'd have to do it, you know, outside or something. And then there's enough like stink and putrefaction going around. Plus, if you think that these people have some sort of poison gas and all of you are already weak, right? You don't want to like cut them open and right. then infect yourself. Right. Uh, I mean, and that was one of his first hypotheses. I can read from the book again here that this is after he's in the hospital now. So he he makes to the hospital and actually, I mean, the hospital almost burns down because half of the building catches on fire and burns uh, and they all manage to survive that somehow. And then they're in the hospital and they're trying to treat everyone. He's bedridden for the first few days because that huge scar in his leg. Uh, And then once that heals up, he's able to start walking around and trying to help with healing people. And this is when he starts wondering, like, why are some of these people dying? And he says that it was reported that none of the patients had any appetite and that one by one they were beginning to vomit and have diarrhea. Did the new weapon I had heard about throw off a poison gas or perhaps some deadly germ? I asked Dr. Hanaoka to confirm if he could the report of vomiting and diarrhea and to find out if any of the patients looked as if they might have an infectious disease. 
He inquired and brought word that there were many who not only had diarrhea but bloody stools, and that some had had as many as 40 to 50 stools during the previous night. This convinced me that we were dealing with bacillary dysentery and had no choice but to isolate those who were infected. So he basically thought it was an infectious disease. Yeah. And to be fair, that's a totally reasonable yeah. assumption, right? Yeah. Right off the bat, you have no idea about radiation sickness or anything. Right. You don't even know an atomic bomb is a thing yeah. you know, at that point. Exactly. Yeah. And so you're trying to figure out, you know, these people got hit by a bomb. Why do they all suddenly have diarrhea? It doesn't right. make sense. Right. Yeah. Unless there's some sort of biological agent or... And it's just like like taking even a, maybe a, a broader view of the whole event and book. It's I almost viewed this book as like applied philosophy in some ways where it's like, okay, you can read about stoicism. You can read like Seneca, which I highly recommend to read Seneca and obviously listen to our episode, episode about Seneca. Three, two, two, I think two. two. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, obviously that's very valuable, yeah. but then a lot of the things in this book are kind of like force those thoughts from Seneca to actually be applied yeah. in an environment like this. Well, he's got this great line from the same section as where he's debating if it's an infectious disease. And he says, you know, in two days, I'd become at home in this environment of chaos and despair. And you can tell in his in his writing yeah. that it becomes normal. It just becomes totally normal. He starts yeah. talking about all of the deaths and everything. And it actually, you know, from a little bit further down, people were dying so fast that I had begun to accept death as a matter of course and cease to respect its awfulness. I considered a family lucky if it had not lost more than two of its members. How could I hold my head up among the citizens of Hiroshima with thoughts like that in my mind? So he's immediately gotten used to it, but then he also has that guilt from it. Of why am I so used to this? Exactly. Kind of why does it suddenly feel normal? But it does show how like quickly humans can get used to things. Yeah. One question I have, which I didn't get an answer from in the book, is like, I wonder where they were getting their water and food. Because it seemed like they had it. Yeah. Well... They were mostly eating rice, right? Yeah. Pretty much every meal he talks about is rice. Right. And very occasionally they get something special. From somebody outside who visits. And, yeah. yeah. So I bet at least for the rice, they've just got it somewhere in the basement, right? I mean, rice is oh, pretty easy to store. Burned. Oh, and it didn't get burned. Yeah. And, yeah. Because if you just had it in like a cellar somewhere, right, they'd probably be fine. But water is a good question. They didn't answer yeah. that. Well, I guess I know Hiroshima has a lot of water around it. And uh, I think there's a river that runs right next. So I'm wondering if maybe they got it from there but they never talked about that part about where they were getting their water because there were a lot of patients in that hospital and yeah they had I'm sure there wasn't running water <laughs> something like 300 yeah. inpatient and outpatients so they're taking care of a lot of people yeah and because all their families were there too right well because so, people didn't have homes anymore yeah like, you couldn't just go somewhere so and we should mention the hospital was basically made entirely of concrete so it was one of the few buildings in the area that managed to not get completely blown down yeah i also liked how um you know, there was that one section about going upstairs after the fire. Yeah. Like the two floors. At first, they were debating like who has to go upstairs. And then I really liked how they said, you know, because they assumed it was going to be worse. They said the staff needs to go up there. It's a really good like leading from the front type of mentality. But then it turned out it was actually better. Yeah. And then they brought more people up there. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it was just a really cool thing to see that because you also see in disaster situations, sometimes like people become power hungry or like authoritarian and this didn't seem like that, at least from his diary. It seemed very cooperative. They're, they're literally saying that the top is part of what got burned down. Yeah. And so there's basically no roof on the right. building anymore. Yeah, because they would keep getting wet whenever it rains. Exactly. Later <laughs> in the book, it keeps raining and then their beds yeah. get soaked and stuff. And so, yeah, they say that, that they'll go up there and stay. But then the crazy thing about that is it's now one of the highest points in the city. So they can actually see pretty much everything from up there. Uh, and he's describing it the first time they go up there. And he says... 
For acres and acres, the city was like a desert, except for scattered piles of brick and roof tile. I had to revise my meaning of the word destruction or choose some other word to describe what I saw. Devastation may be a better word, but really I know of no word or words to describe the view from my twisted iron bed in the fire-gutted ward of the communications hospital. Yeah, actually in Hiroshima where, uh, I think where the epicenter was, they preserved one building from the blast so you can see what that looks like. And that's probably one of the better buildings because it was something to preserve. Yeah. Right, where I mean, it is like fully gray, like a burnt out, like, you know, you've seen like a burnt out building. It's kind of like that, except probably like the worst possible fire you could have ever imagined. I wonder if it's the telephone building. It might, I think it is. Actually. It probably is. I think it is. Because that's the one close to the center that he says is still it's up still that up. he goes to. And so that's probably one of the better buildings in terms of what this destruction could have looked like. Yeah. So I'm just like picturing that, but then all burned down basically and then for every direction you're you can see yeah just completely leveled yeah right? he describes it as a desert and later he describes it as just like a plane of destruction it's just everything's flat and can you imagine that going from seeing all these buildings everything around you and then they're just flat right that's wild it's like it defies the even the imagination to even try to picture it in your brain I wonder, I bet there's pictures from that time when like the army went in and stuff. Oh, there must be. 45? Yeah. yeah. There must be. Yeah, I wonder. That'd be cool to look at. I've, I don't think I've ever seen those besides whatever they had at the museum. Yeah, there wouldn't have been any from the initial last no. time probably because people's cameras would have been destroyed yeah. with the microscopes. But I'm sure there are some photos online that we could find. Yeah, he's obviously very descriptive of a lot of the symptoms because he's a, you know, he's a doctor. And also, I felt like as I was reading this, he was recording a lot of the symptoms for his like almost like his own detective notebook, right? Of like trying to deduce what the, the thing actually was. I felt that way, too, that he was using the diary partially as like an exploration of what might be causing all yeah. of these symptoms, because he goes into a lot of depth about each of the patients that he's seeing regularly and what kind of symptoms they're showing and then his thoughts about that. And their progression. Yeah, and their progression yeah. too. So One thing I never knew too about atomic bombs was, uh, or I guess like nuclear weapons in general, that there's a flash followed by the boom. I didn't know about the flash part of it. That's like they're calling it like the pika dawn. Yeah, the pika dawn. Right, and pika is flash, dawn is boom, I guess. And uh, I just never realized there was a flash. I just assumed the bomb drops explodes and yeah. that's kind of that but it seemed like there was a distinct flash right before which is probably the start of the reaction i'm guessing I suppose yeah, yeah i mean i wasn't sure if it was a separate thing or if it's just a consequence of the speed of light versus uh, sound yeah right it could just be that could just be like the lightning versus thunder lightning and thunder like, exactly yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure. It could be two separate things. But that was one of the strange parts of the book, too, was that people who were really close to it didn't hear it. Right. And I guess it was just because it was so powerful that it immediately knocked them deaf right. for a brief period. That's possible. And so yeah. they thought it was just a flash. Right. right? And people further away further said away. both. Yeah, exactly. So you've got these conflicting stories in the book where some people are saying, you know, no, it's just a flash. And other people are saying, no, it's a flash and a boom. Right. right. Yeah, I think he says people in the city would just call like, it Pika. Yeah. If you were a thousand meters or more out, then you would say it was Picadon. Yeah. If you were within a thousand meters. Which if you think about it, is not far. Yeah. Like a thousand meters is just like one kilometer. I was actually thinking about that too, because in some ways that's almost a little reassuring. Yeah. That it's not that big. Because you think of an atom bomb as this completely like just obliterate everything. Yeah. But if you were outside 500 to a thousand meters, you mostly survived. Yeah. Although, to be honest, these bombs were incredibly small compared yeah. <laughs> to like what we're capable of now. <laughs> like several orders of magnitude different. Yeah, that's very true. Hydrogen bombs especially are like 
ridiculous like i mean we we did that on the emergency episode where we went yeah, to that one site where you can see the yeah you can go to the site i don't remember what the site's called but i, I bet if we i bet it's in that episode yeah, in the show notes somewhere <laughs> but yeah i mean if you dropped what, what was the hiroshima one little man or little boy, boy fat man there, there's like there's, there was like these what, are obviously the american little boy and fat it. man yeah Whatever. Of the two bombs, if you dropped either of them on like Fidei in Manhattan, we'd be fine up here, right? On yeah, we looked at that. Street. Yeah, we looked it up and we're like, oh, cool. Like, we'd be okay. Yeah. But obviously, there's much stronger bombs now. Yeah. <laughs> Although it is reassuring because the suitcase bomb thing, right, is like, it is reassuring from that perspective. Although I can't Although even bigger, imagine the mayhem. The bigger concern with those isn't the explosion. It's the radioactive the fallout. fallout. Yeah. yeah. Because, and to be fair, you can be in a decent amount of fallout for a few hours and like you'll recover. It would just be bad if it like got out and nobody realized it until a few days later. Right. Yeah. And that was actually one of the interesting concerns that started coming up in the book was this idea of would people be able to live in Hiroshima and were they even being sick by staying at the hospital? Because right. these rumors start coming up that, oh, it's going to be uninhabitable for 75 years. People were saying if you go to Hiroshima, you'll get sick and die right. because some people were apparently, right? right? Yeah. Which makes sense. If you went to a fallout zone, yeah, the fallout zone, then without any protection, exactly. You definitely start to get the radiation sickness, but it sounds like the hospital, which was about 1500 meters out, was in like a safe enough zone where they weren't having any of those issues and they were able to get better. The one question I would have is 10, 20 year follow up on everybody there, right? right? How many of them got early cancers right, and stuff? Exactly. Yeah. Right? I would, I'd be very curious to know about that. Obviously it's outside the scope of the diary, but it would be very interesting to, to see that. Cause that's the other place that it comes in pretty frequently. It's like you either die in the first month or two, or you end up dying, you know, oh, 10, right. 20 years earlier than you should later because you know, cancer and stuff. So yeah, because it caused mutations and then... But again, they like obviously didn't know any of that back then. It's all such a new field. It was also interesting, like the rumors that started spreading because there was no easy access to information. Like when they found... when I think somebody gave them the rumor that Japan had the weapon too and had to use yeah. it against the US. That's what happens, what is it, like three or four days later? Yeah, something uh, like that. After Nagasaki gets bombed. Yeah, Here, right. I've, I've got the line. A man came in from Fuchu with the incredible story that Japan had the same mysterious weapon, but until now had kept it a strict secret and had not used it because it was judged too horrible even to mention right a little, a little like virtue signaling right, there exactly. almost right? it's yeah. like oh well, we had this too but we're not as terrible as the americans exactly. so we would never use this on people and then continuing says this man went on to say that a special attack squad from the navy had now used the bomb on mainland america and that his news had come from no less a source than general headquarters and then it goes back to hachia thinking and he says if San Francisco, San Diego, and Los Angeles have been hit like Hiroshima, what chaos there must be in those cities. At last, Japan was retaliating. The whole atmosphere in the ward changed, and for the first time since Hiroshima was bombed, everyone became cheerful and bright. Those who had been hurt the most were the happiest. Jokes were made, and some began singing the victory song. Prayers were said for the soldiers. Everyone was now convinced that the tide of war had turned. Yeah. So they were still sort of in this war mood even after this. They're just completely beaten down by this weapon. But then you hear that, okay, we retaliated on the US, right? And then everyone's happy again. Yeah. Which is, in some ways, it's kind of admirable, right? It's interesting, too, from a psychological perspective to just see, like, how humans react to agency, I guess. And, like, when you feel like you're doing something about a problem, you feel a lot more cheerful and bright. And probably this is what they felt like, too, is like, okay, yeah, you're beaten down, but now at least you're retaliating and doing something about it. Well, and also just the 
kind of futility or uselessness of having been bombed because you if your sacrifice is worth something now. exactly it's like okay you know we had to take this horrible thing but it gave our country kind of the sense of permission to destroy the enemy and so now it's like a worthwhile sacrifice but without that it's really just like, and because to be fair, I mean, this was an extremely brutal way to defeat the country. Yeah, definitely. It's like, we're just going to drop these incredibly terrible bombs on you every like, few literally days. The literally days. the worst weapons yeah. that were invented at that invented. point. Yeah. Exactly. And we're going to do that every few days until you surrender. It's terrifying. It's right. right. And they also picked two cities that were, well, Hiroshima, I think they picked mainly because it was a military city, essentially. Yeah. And then I know they picked Nagasaki, but the two that this is at the museum actually that they they were talking about this two that were initially proposed were Tokyo and Kyoto, and they didn't do those because they were like maybe they'll surrender if we do two smaller cities first, and then with the implied threat of like Tokyo's next and uh, or Kyoto's next, and then Tokyo if you still don't surrender. So kind of like this is almost the warning shot. Yeah. Even though it's so, I mean, it's horrible, right? Yeah, As a warning, warning shot, shot that kills tens of thousands of people. Right. But yeah. imagine like Tokyo, if this has happened in Tokyo, it's like, or, I mean, and who knows, it doesn't even have to be limited to one bomb for each city, right? It could be, like, can you imagine they followed up on this bomb with another one in Hiroshima? Yeah. Like, we had more of them. Yeah. And, and also Japan doesn't know, right? Like we could have 10, we might have, or we might've used all the two that we had, right? So it's kind so, of a gamble. Yeah. It's this uncertainty, but yeah, it's interesting that they did it so soon after also in nagasaki oh the like three days later the three days later thing and i i had heard that it might be more than three days it was, it was only a few days though it wasn't too much different yeah and i'd actually heard that um i could be wrong about this but i thought i had read either in this book or maybe it was at the museum that the decision to surrender had much more to do with russia joining the war against japan because they had previously not declared war on japan right but it was less to do with the bomb it was like partially the bombs i'm, I'm sure but like they definitely you could get this vibe from the book too. the military, especially in Japan, had this almost like suicidal kamikaze type of sense yeah. where I don't know if they would have surrendered just off the bombs. But I think the the fact that the Russians were also going to join in an invasion kind of just made it seem like it's a completely futile effort. Yeah. I mean, if you're getting squeezed on both sides, plus getting atomic bombs, plus getting like, atomic bombed and like Japan's tiny. Yeah. I mean, they got a lot of people for the size for of the size, yep. but it's still, if you've got Russia on one side and the U S on the other, and you have atomic bombs, yeah. it's just not much that yeah, you're in trouble you do at that, at that point. point. And you're an Island. Yeah. And you're an Island, right? Which is good and much. bad. Yeah. It's good and bad. Russia had the advantage, right? Of like, you can always retreat into the wilderness and they've used that to their advantage <laughs> for every invasion that's ever happened. And they just keep stretching out the invaders. But Japan, yeah. you got nowhere to go. Exactly. Really, right? You're stuck there. Which is, yeah, it's good because you probably get invaded less often. It's harder to invade you, but it's bad because you can't escape either. Yeah. Well, and that, what you were saying before, too, about that kind of suicidal attitude towards ensuring destruction. Yeah. I'm not sure where it is, but Hachia mentions that where he says that if the U.S. were being bombed, that Japan wouldn't be flying a B-29 way over and dropping something. The pilot would be guiding it in yes. to make sure it hit at the right spot. Yeah, it's just like that's yeah. sort of the default attitude. And, and it comes up a lot later, too, as they're surrendering and failing, is that they're kind of calling on everyone to commit harikiri, right? right? Which is this sort of ritualistic suicide yeah. on having dishonored yourself or having failed. Yeah. And so they're calling for military generals to yeah. do it some people want the emperor to do it it's interesting to hear that be discussed so normally i mean that's so culturally different 
to I think us as yeah. Americans where <laughs> can you imagine if it was a totally acceptable thing for us to be like you know Bush you failed in Iraq you right. have to commit suicide right. and although it brings more skin in the game to not yeah up, right? well, that, like, that's yeah. actually a great point right is it's sort of like the the idea that any senator who votes for declaring war they yeah. or their children should have to be on the front line and it's kind of like there's some wisdom to that yeah that was a cool thing about, uh, I finished the Churchill three-part biography. Mm-hmm. I think, I don't know if I mentioned that on the podcast yet. But anyway, that was a massive undertaking because each one is like 1,500 pages long. <laughs> so, But it's written in the most like fun manner. So it's okay. not like a slog to read by any means. But it's cool because like D-Day, like as part of the invasion, Churchill wanted to be on one of the lead boats. Badass. And the only thing that could get him to not do it, because he's also, I didn't realize this, like in addition to being prime minister, he was also head of the war department. Okay. So he took on both roles. Which you're normally not in both roles. No, you might be the ultimate decision maker, but it would be like the U.S. president also being head of the Defense Department. Okay, so it's like you don't have a deputy who's in charge of that. It's like you are also in charge of that. So because he previously had that role under a different prime minister and he was in the military. So he's kind of like that was his forte. So he didn't want to give that part up. But then he also wanted to be prime minister. So he just kept the role. So technically, nobody could tell him no. Yeah. (laughs) To not be there. The only thing that got him to not do it is uh, the king actually said that if Churchill does it, he's going to do it too. Uh, as a way to like get Churchill to not do it. Yeah. (laughs) Churchill's like, yeah, we can't have that. So (laughs) that's great. (laughs) I I don't remember why I was looking this up. But it was cool, right? It shows the skin in the game kind of thing of like, yeah, we're not going to send soldiers to do things that we wouldn't do. We don't Uh, believe in. Yeah. The last president who fought in any kind of military thing I believe was Jefferson, right? Oh, as president. Yeah, as president. Oh, wow. He he was involved in some kind of... Was it the piracy stuff? Because I remember his big thing was the piracy. Yeah, it was something pretty small. And I think like Lincoln was at a battle, but he didn't fight. And those are basically two of the only cases, right? But then obviously everything since then, no president has even like been on a battlefield, which I don't know. To me, that seems weird. It's like you should have a little skin in the game. You should at least... It's kind of like if... um, I mean, this is obviously a way less serious example, but companies where like the CEO would never do a customer service thing is like kind of bullshit. If you're a CEO, you should be like front lines customer service. Yeah, I mean, I know uh, Steve Jobs was famous for having his email like available for people to email him. And Jeff would, Bezos too. Bezos does that too. Yep. Yeah. It's like a really good thing to do as a CEO. I mean, it also probably makes it your commands so much more easier to follow. From one, because it's like you would do the same thing. You lead by example. Like people will respect you more because you don't feel like you're above it. And also, you get better information because right? you're dealing directly with you're customers. Of course, you're on the ground. Uh, there's a company, Zapier, and what they do actually, which I think is super cool, is they automate interactions between tons of different apps, like 650 apps now, where it's like, you know, if this thing happens in my email, do this with mm. like my sales CRM. And because they have so many apps, they have to have a huge support team because there's yeah, just like so many things that can go wrong yep. but every friday their whole support team gets the day off and everybody else in the company has to do support including like all the c-suite that's people such that's idea. such a good idea which is yeah it's it's awesome for the support people because it's like hey you know we want to help too and then it's everybody like, hears about the problems yeah and everyone hears about the problems right, so can improve the product yep. yeah exactly yeah. so if you're a developer you're like not hearing about problems secondhand you'd hear about them you know directly yeah that's a really good idea so i think everyone has to sign up for a two to four hour shift on friday to be such a good idea. on support staff such a good idea. yeah it's a really cool idea <laughs> <I love it. laughs> but it's kind of like that right it's like going back to the book that is kind of like when it's the expectation that if you fail you have to commit suicide <laughs> i guess if you fail in a is it in a dishonorable way or is it a yeah it's something about 
he doesn't explicitly talk about it. Yeah, it didn't feel like it's the losing. Yeah. It was more the giving up or acting dishonorably. That's what it felt more like. Not so much a, hey, we lost, you have to kill yourself. It was a, hey, you like failed your principles or, you know, you failed us. I guess that distinction is a little unclear in some cases. Yeah. And of course, he doesn't go into that in the diary of like what exactly triggers. And honestly, he probably doesn't go into it because it's just a default national sentiment. It's like you don't have to explain it because he's not expecting somebody from the West to read this. Yeah. It's like, at most, it would be somebody from Japan who was like, oh, of course. Would immediately get it. Yeah. One thing that was, I mean, this is obviously way later, but when they're talking about, like, Western troops coming in, there were two things about that that were pretty interesting. Like, one, it was kind of interesting to see that the Japanese soldiers were assuming that there was going to be a lot of, like, raping and pillaging when the Western troops came in because they were sort of projecting what they had done in China onto that. And then, two, it was really encouraging to see that how, like, that didn't happen, at least according to his diary. Yeah. At least in Hiroshima, it didn't seem like it had happened. Well, it seems like there was a big difference between what the military thought and what the the citizens thought because Hachia throughout is basically saying, like, no, I think Westerners are, like, civilized, nice people. They won't do that. Whereas all the military are saying, like, you need to get all the women out of the city now. Yeah. And I think and he sent his wife out, too. Yeah, but well, he, not for a while. Though. Yeah, not for a while. Yeah, not until much I think later. he did it as like a very last minute precaution. Yeah. Uh, but that but was yeah. after there were there were already troops exactly. coming around and yeah. all of that. So it seemed like it was much less of a concern to him and yeah. more, like you said, to the military. Yeah, they were really like every military person he talked to was like insisting on it. Yeah. And to be fair, though, part of that probably is just from the brainwashing. Oh, yeah. And we did this in the US, too. There's actually a really great exhibit on this in the Spy Museum in D.C. of World War II propaganda. And all of the stuff that we would publish and even put in TV cartoons that just made the Japanese look like these kind of like idiot backwater savages with huge teeth and tiny eyes and uh-huh. crazy accents, like super racist stuff that would not fly today. But it seems like we do, I mean, not in the same extent, we do similar things about like with some of the Middle Eastern countries, not in the same way, not not in like as direct of a fashion. But we're not like putting it in kids' cartoons. No, we're not putting right? it in kids' cartoons. But I'm saying, all I'm saying is like on like CNN, they'll always show the clips of like basically the rednecks of like Afghanistan. Yeah. And that's not like the average citizen. But when we do it to each other, we do it to. Yes, exactly. Right. It's like, oh, the typical Trump voter must be like some idiot, fat, middle American. The typical liberal is somebody with cool guy glasses and like or 25 year old white girl at Middlebury who has three genders. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly that. Right. So it's very stereotypical is all I'm trying to say. Yeah. Obviously, we did it to a much greater extent in World War II. But that, that's definitely where I think some of this fear would come in, right? Is that they no, probably were doing the same thing about Americans. Oh, certainly. Yeah. I mean, and that was part of I haven't read this, but I've seen excerpts of it. Like they talk about it in Rape of Nanking, where literally part of the Japanese school system was indoctrinating kids to just hate the Chinese. Hmm. And that was part of why the military was able to be so just horribly vicious towards the Chinese when they came aground because they didn't think of them as humans, right? They they weren't real people. Heard that about the Middle East, too, where they they basically portray Westerners as these like not uncivilized, but like more like 
people without morals and really like essentially a caricature. It's a really effective a military tactic. Yeah. Yeah. Cause then you don't feel so bad about killing them. Right. Have you seen that black mirror episode? No. Uh, so there, there's an amazing, uh, I guess like spoiler, but do you think you'll watch it? <laughs> yeah, it, I'll watch it, but don't, but you can spoil it. That's fine. Okay. You'd probably figure out the plot pretty quickly. Okay. Uh, so basically it's, I don't know if it's a compliment or not. No, no, no it's, <laughs> it, it's, it's relatively clear what's going on, but it's still okay. awesome. And I apologize. Like if you, if you're definitely going to watch black mirror season three, skip uh, just like next. skip ahead 30, 40 seconds. <laughs> It's an episode where it's like a military team and they're fighting these people in what seems like Eastern Europe, but they're not like people, they're sick. They've been like zombified by something. And so they can't speak in any understandable language. Their faces are all like contorted and just like really messed up. And so they're going in and like exterminating them, right? Because they've got to like wipe out these infected people so the disease doesn't spread. What eventually comes about is that all of the soldiers, when they join the military, get like this chip implanted. Oh, yeah. I've heard of this. Yeah. Yeah, that basically brainwashes them from before so they forget that they have this chip implanted and then warps their visual perception to see all the enemy as these like horribly disfigured disgusting people. Even though that's people, not what they... Even though they're totally healthy and yeah. normal. And that's like how they get their military to just go in and kill everyone, right? And this is actually... I think we've talked about this on the episode before, but military participation. So how much of the military actually kills people, right? It used to be really low. Like uh, there'd be things that would happen in the Revolutionary War where somebody would be on a firing line and they wouldn't die because all the soldiers wouldn't point their guns at them, uh, right? Yeah. Or you'd have people shooting at each other in, you know, Revolutionary, even like Civil War days and 10% or fewer would actually be shooting at people. Others would be like, you know, pointing their guns away, intentionally missing because they couldn't bring themselves to kill people. But that participation rate has gone up and up and up since then because we've gotten better at training the military to actually kill people. Do you think it's partially that and also partially that it was conscription at that time? Oh, I'm sure that's right? part of it too. But like, it was much higher in like World War II, yeah. Vietnam. Have you read Catch-22, by the way? I've not. So I've read it and it's one of those books that when I read it, I was like, but eh, I don't see what all the hype's about. But then, like, you keep thinking about it later. Like, it keeps oh, okay. coming up. So then you, like, respect it more and more in hindsight. I mean, I don't want to, like, give the whole plot. It's not necessary for this conversation. But the thing that's really interesting is the main character keeps talking about, like, you know, he's kind of, like, trying to get out of the war. So he keeps having these objectives like, oh, if you hit this, we'll send you home. Or like, if you don't hit this, like, then you fall below this performance thing and we'll send you home. Or like, uh, so he keeps trying to like figure out ways to get sent home. And he, I forget who the enemy was. I think it was the Italians. I want to say it was it, like, that was the sort of opposing side that he gave. And he keeps talking about how he has like no problems with the other soldiers that he's fighting at all. And they don't have any problem with him. So he just like can't see why they're even at war. And it's just a very interesting um, way of like looking at the mentality of soldiers, especially who've been conscripted, yeah. where it's not really their choice to be over there. Well, this apparently happened in World War II as well. That's what, so it was World War II. It was okay. based on World War II. Yeah. Well, I was going to say there were parts where there would be, you know, trenched in fighters, I guess like World War One as well, and they would just kind of stop fighting each other. Yeah. Have you seen the Christmas Day thing? <laughs> yeah, the Christmas Day thing. I think thing that was World just, War One. Yeah. They just started playing soccer. Yeah. And then they also like had a meal together. Yeah. And, everything. <laughs> yeah. and then they had to go back to their trenches the next day. But I think there were a lot of cases too, where they just stopped shooting at each other for a long period until some higher up came and yelled at them yeah. that they had to start shooting again. Well, it's kind of, I mean, going back to the conscription and volunteerism thing, it's like now we're kind of also self-selecting for people who think they would be good at doing that. Right. So, I mean, not everybody is obviously, but somebody who would think they would be good at that is probably going to be better, like on average, going to be better at doing that than someone who's drafted. And you've got some cognitive dissonance where it's, if oh, I well, I chose I to be this. here. Yeah. I wanted to come do this. So I have to do this versus, well, I have to be here, right. but I don't have to you know, comply with everything. Yeah, I can't even imagine what conscription 
must feel like too yeah. it's like you kind of just have to do it especially if there's not a strong national sentiment towards civic duty because i think that in some cultures it feels way more acceptable or like israel i imagine yeah. that if you're born in israel and you grow up in israel and you're like a devout jew then you feel at least more like okay you know i'm more than happy to spend a couple of years like training to protect this place yeah. whereas in america like i feel no compulsion to go do that although i wonder like how many years ago now? 70 years ago, basically. I wonder what like what it was like. That's what I'm thinking, is that I bet 100 years ago there was a bit more of that sense of national camaraderie yeah. in you know having to defend the country, right? And it was probably easier to do that with propaganda and stuff too, yeah. right? Because now if you try to do the whole like, you know, cartoon Japanese people who are like stupid and look funny, we would just go on Google and be like, okay, like obviously Japanese people don't look like that. Right. right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that a lot of these tactics don't work anymore. Right. Because there's just more information out there. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I like the Israel example is a really good one. I hadn't even thought of that. But you're right. You probably there's no not much resentment against that fact. There's probably still some, but I imagine less. Yeah, right? definitely less. And actually, I mean, the main resentment that I've heard, at least from that, is towards the I think they're Orthodox Jews in the country who don't have to be who don't want to participate. Well, no, who don't have to. Okay. Because Why is they're that? it's something about they spend all of their time studying and you know trying to like better interpret the old religious texts. Oh, so it's not like a um religious objection to war. Yeah, it's like they're exempt. Got it. Yeah. And so you've got this big part of the population that doesn't have to do any of the military and doesn't even have to go fight if they get attacked because they get to stay home and read. Uh, right? So people probably resent so that. Yeah. Everybody who's not in that group is like, okay, no, that's not fair at all. <laughs> right. But it sounds like it's not a, hey, we shouldn't have to be drafted. It's no, they should have to as well. They should also right? have to. They should also be yeah. contributing to this. Yeah. It's inter- I think it was in the UK where uh, I want to say World War One. This was in... Um, What's hardcore history? Who's that guy? Dan, Dan Carlin. Carlin. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think it was in his World War One series. He was talking about there were like people who would be exempt from the draft for whatever reason, whether it was like a physical injury, ailment, they were too small, like all these different types of things. Yeah. And in order to create like public pressure to join the military, basically do everything you could to join, they would, you know, the tactic they use is very interesting. They'd go to the women in each town and say basically shun any man who's like an able-bodied male who uh, is still here. That's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it'd be like, not only are you like not there with all your peers, it's like now all the women in your town hate you too. Yeah. So smart. yeah, it's a good tactic. <laughs> it's a great, really tactic. smart tactic. Yeah. Because <laughs> we all know that's why men do things. Right? So, Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there's a few more terrifying descriptions of the events immediately following the bomb that we didn't get to. Uh, and one of them actually reminds me of emergency. Because if you remember in the book, in emergency, Strauss mentioned that if there is like an atomic blast and you have time, you can get in a pool. Oh, yeah. Right. To protect yourself. Yeah. Because the water will help block some of the radiation. It'll block the fire from the blast, obviously. But that's what a lot of people try to do in Hiroshima. And then he's got this horrible description here that even the swimming pool at the prefectural first middle school is filled with dead people. They must have suffocated while they sat in the water trying to escape the fire because they didn't appear to be burned. And there's a bit more after that and basically goes on to say that so many people tried to get in the pools to protect themselves that they pushed the other people down so they ended up drowning them yeah and then the same thing happens with people at the river later oh too. yeah so there is a river i forgot about that yeah yeah, yeah. where they're trying to escape from the blast and everything and they get to this river and i'm trying to find the excerpt here here we go and this is somebody else telling the story to uh 
Hachia. And basically all these people are running away from the fire, from the blast, because it's burning them. And they're trying to cross this river. But then there's an officer on the other side of the river saying that he'll kill them if they come across. Yeah. And so this guy's telling the story. He says... Is that because they maybe thought they had like an infectious disease or something? No, no, no. It says it right oh, here. Let me, let, me, let me read the section. I'll let you read it. Let you read it. <laughs> For a moment, I thought the officer had lost his mind, but then I realized he was trying to save these people and was wise as well as brave. Doctor, you know very well the river at that point is deep and the current swift. Every year, many people drown who try to cross there. It is my belief that the officer was trying to prevent the people from jumping into the river at that treacherous point. Even though the river is more than 100 meters wide along the border of the park, balls of fire were being carried through the air from the opposite shore, and soon the pine trees in the park were afire. The poor people faced a fiery death if they stayed in the park and a watery grave if they jumped in the river. I could hear shouting and crying, and in a few minutes they began to fall like toppling dominoes into the river. Hundreds upon hundreds jumped or were pushed into the river at this deep treacherous point and most were drowned. The sight was unbelievable. For myself, I lay there in the river and splashed water over my head while the heat from the licking flames became unbearable. Yeah, it's, I mean, um, the description, even the part where it said fireballs basically were going from one side of the river to the other and it's a hundred meters apart. That's a football field. It's more than a football field. Yeah, a little more, right? Yeah, that's insane. And you're stuck on this one side with this fire encroaching on you. And then you've got this icy river river, that's got the strong current and it's probably going to pull you under and you can't do anything. And then on top of that, you've got all of these people pushing you into the river because everyone's freaking out and you're just going to end up getting pushed in. And it's amazing that this guy survived. And it sounds like he did it by just getting in, but holding on to the side of the river. Not trying to swim across, but just stay there. Just stay in there to keep him cool. And then pop his head up when he needed air. And it's like all he could do. And just wait for the fire to burn itself out. Yeah. Basically. Jeez. Yeah. Um, there's one part really close to that section. I think it's right before where he's talking about how they had no communications. Mm-hmm. So I'll just read it from the book. Besides, we had no radio. To me, this was something of a blessing for being without some of the so-called advantages of civilization gave me a freedom of spirit and action others could not enjoy with their telephones, radios, and newspapers. Having lost everything in the fire and being now empty-handed was not entirely without advantage. I experienced a certain lightheartedness I had not known for a long time. Yeah, so it's like minimalism, basically. Well, it's, you know what this actually reminded me a lot of? Have you read Endurance? Yeah. That would actually be a good book for us to do sometime. That's a great book. I think it was on your original list, actually, when we were talking about making this podcast. It's it's an amazing book. It's a great book. If anyone doesn't know, Endurance is the story of this guy, Shackleton, who's on a quest to be the first person to cross Antarctica, right? So somebody already made it to the South Pole, but nobody had traversed Antarctica. And so he goes and he starts this quest. Basically, he sails down there with all his men. The boat gets locked in the ice. Uh, They stay on the boat locked in the ice for a year. And then they realize that it's never getting out of the ice. They get off and then they spend the next year and a half walking back across Antarctica, going in these little dinghies from Antarctica to the Falkland Islands. Yeah. I think it's Falkland Islands. I think it was Falkland Islands. Climbing yeah. over the mountains on the islands in order to like get it's an incredible story. And literally nobody dies. Yeah. That's, Every single person survives. Spoiler alert. It's but insane. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, no, they tell you this in the I intro. Know, <laughs> it's like kidding. it's in the intro of the book. It's like and you're it's not gonna believe this. Yeah. yeah. So but it's like these guys, these twenty-five men spend two and a half years stuck in Antarctica with, you know, this is in the 40s, right? There's no communication or anything and they survive, uh, which is wild. But what this reminded me of is 
there's a great scene in Endurance where it's after they've already spent the year in the boat on the ice and now they're out living on the ice because the boat's been destroyed, the ship's been destroyed. And living on the ice and Shackleton, or I guess not Shackleton, whoever was keeping the diary has this note that the men all had just gotten used to it. And they're playing soccer in the snow and they've got their little huts and they're like taking the dogs for walks and eating their seal blubber. And it's just totally normal. They're just like, all right, this is our life now, right? Nobody's complaining or unhappy. It's, you know, 10 degrees degrees out but they're just like whatever right? this is our life now it's it's amazing how quickly you can adapt to these terrible situations yeah it's almost like the change is more like painful than anything else yeah. and then once you've sort of settled in i mean you get that sense in this book too once they've sort of settled into the routine it's like fine for him what's that whole hedonic adaptation yeah right and we forget yeah. that it goes in both directions right where if you you know it's like people who become double amputees end up just as happy as lottery winners because you eventually just go back to your normal baseline yeah and it's the same thing for this right it sucks at the change but then you kind of go back to normal and it's just your life and how you operate right just like when something awesome happens or you get that new car it's great for a little bit and then then it's just how you get around yeah and it's weird to think about because as you're reading this is like oh my god all this stuff it's so terrible they're in this hospital filled with shit and dead people literally shit literally shit and dead people Yeah. yeah but by day two or three he's like all right i did the rounds today i had to step over a few people and you know avoid the like the stairwell that everyone was using as a bathroom yeah. right that was oh my that god was disturbing this, yeah. this is one of the few books where you'll read parts of it and you kind of like want to puke yeah oh right? definitely yeah there's not many books that can do that but it's just the and also the matter of fact way he was saying a lot of the stuff too because yeah. it's just like part of his existence now yeah it's just totally normal or the the latrine outside yeah where it's just this little hole that's been dug and then there's two pieces of wood kind of over it that you sit on but then it's kind of overflowing with waste and there's like worms and shit can't growing out of it can't even imagine the smell oh yeah I can't even imagine what that must have been like although i wonder do people get used to, they just get you do. used to it yeah i yeah. mean you've probably had this experience before where you will walk into a place oh uh, yeah and it'll smell it weird yep. and then five minutes later you don't smell it yeah or uh you'll walk in and you'll say it smells weird and the person who lives there or who's oh, already God. there will say like what are you talking about yeah because we get used to smell really quickly yeah so it just sort of fades into the background well he's got a few weird sections here too where what is it like the sardine smell oh yeah like burning sardines yeah i think they're up in the roof i'm not sure where it is right now but they're up in the that roof area where their beds are and he says that and at first it smells good to him he's like oh i could smell like the pleasant aroma of like cooked sardines and so he asks someone where it's coming from and they say that they're cremating bodies outside right it's like oh i've heard that before too that i guess like like burning human Smell? Yeah, it's like a sweet kind of like, uh, I've heard pork. It smells like somebody's cooking like pork or something. Interesting. I could see that because it's like we are not that different from pigs, like biologically. Yeah. So, so I guess it kind of makes sense. Well, it's also just like meat in general, right? Yeah. How different will it smell based on what you're cooking? Uh, but that's got to be a weird experience to be like, oh, what does it smell? It's yeah, nice. It smells and then nice. Oh, hungry. And then yeah. like, oh, it's people. And oh, you're it's like, humans. Yeah. Actually, I don't know. This kind of a semi-fucked up question but we're so, gonna make a cannibalistic yeah, question because no, you, you have like, cannibalistic tendencies <laughs> <laughs> you really do not i'm curious it didn't come up at all right yeah although it didn't seem like food was that scary yeah i guess food really wasn't an issue maybe it was they didn't issue. hit like i never i at least he didn't talk about anyone dying of starvation yeah. or anything like that or no one being emaciated or anything so food must have been just totally okay it, it must have had, had enough food. rice also maybe each of the houses that had burned down also had like a cellar or something Probably. so they could easily get more food i mean it sounds like rice was the main thing that they had yeah like, it didn't sound like they had much meat or anything like that, but didn't sound like people were starving. Like, I, I know he was even mentioning, like, oh, I had three bowls of this rice gruel this morning. So it didn't sound like food was scarce. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm still surprised about the water part because yeah, the they must have gotten it from somewhere. Maybe that river. Yeah, they could have just gone to the river and trucking it over. Yeah. There were some really crazy stories, though, about people surviving the blast. Or how people thought someone, like their significant other or their child was yeah. dead, but not. You want to really. read the one about Mr. Okura's wife? Okay, yeah. The good news came that Mr. Okura's wife was alive. When the blast occurred, Mr. Okura and his wife were pinned beneath their house. He managed to extricate himself and heard Mrs. Okura crying for help. But before he could reach her, the house became a blazing inferno and he was forced to abandon his efforts to save her. When the fire subsided, Mr. Okura returned to the ruins of his house and found some charred bones near where he had last heard his wife's voice. Mr. Okura, believing those bones to be those of his wife, brought them back and laid them before the hospital altar. The other day, Mr. Okura took the bones to his wife's family home in the country, where he found his wife safe and unharmed. She had somehow escaped the burning house and was picked up and carried to safety by a passing army truck. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. And there were a lot of those stories, too, of people who, you know, thought that their son had died or their friend or spouse or whoever, and then discovered them. still alive. Yeah, yeah. And there's a few lines in the book, too, where he meets up with old friends. And he uses this line a couple of times that they congratulated each other on being alive. Yeah. I love that. It's such a fun, or not fun, but it's like an interesting way of framing it. And when he writes, uh, so later on in the book, he figures out all the radiation sickness stuff and that that's what's making people sick. And they get the microscope and they realize that if you track the white blood cell count, you can figure out uh, how at risk someone is of dying. And he writes up this big piece on it and it gets published in a major newspaper in Japan. And then all these people start sending him letters basically saying, you know, we're so happy you're alive, all of this. He's getting like this fan mail basically from all his old friends. (laughs) Yeah. We're like, oh my God, I'm so happy you're, you know, alive. Well, because think about it, you would assume, especially with the reports probably that were coming out of Hiroshima, that like nothing was left. That was the other weird thing is that it seemed like the media downplayed yes, the scope of true, the destruction because everybody who showed up was surprised by how bad it was. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, it was like propaganda, right? Where they didn't want the population to think it was totally as bad. Totally yeah. demoralized, yeah. right? So, because he also said earlier that when they had been bombed in the past, the media had downplayed it. And that was why they were getting like fewer supplies and less relief because they wanted to make it seem like they were in a stronger case. And so I imagine that if you weren't in Hiroshima or Nagasaki and you heard about the surrender, you would be, be like, surprised. What? Right? Yeah. Why? Yeah. Right? If you didn't see this destruction, right. it'd be hard to understand. Exactly yeah, it'd be like two on. minor bombings and we surrender. Like, yeah, right. Yeah. What's going on? But yeah, I mean, luckily, they eventually do get that microscope and then they're able to figure out that there's almost a perfect correlation between blood cell count and mortality. And it's the radiation and the nearness to the blast that's affecting white blood cell count. And then as that gets lower and lower, people start having these internal hemorrhages and dying of various reasons. Yeah. And then they can figure out what the predictors are. And it's it seems like the main thing was those little spots. What were they called? Exactly. Like picate or something? Yeah. Where it was just like little hemorrhages under the skin. And so you could see these kind of like red pinpricks up to like the size of a pencil eraser under someone's skin. And that was a sign that they were starting to internally hemorrhage. And then they would usually die relatively soon after that. Yeah, it was correlated. Yeah, and they weren't itchy or painful. They just were present. All right, so everyone starts checking themselves for them. Yeah. The other interesting thing here, it's, you know, totally uh, off topic now, but is the cigarettes. Yeah. I I thought that was such a 
cool real life demonstration of something we've talked about before of cigarettes being like currency, currency in yeah. disasters yeah yeah because yeah, yeah. that came up in emergency as well right when i was reading it, it almost made me think that i want to buy a carton or something yeah have like it. a carton yeah. or two of cigarettes just to have in yeah. case you know shit it's the fan right. i'll have something to barter with exactly and not only that it's something to barter with but just how much of a morale booster it was for them because i mean you go to asia now and people smoke a lot but they probably smoked even more back in the 40s right maybe yeah because this was yeah. before it was well known you know just how bad they were for you and that's a little preview for a future episode that we're gonna be doing yeah, about yeah, yeah, yeah. so yeah but <laughs> But yeah, so I mean, back then, it probably was just completely like just everyone smoking, totally well, normal, yeah, I mean, kind of like Mad Men. Well, and I think, I mean, like you, I'm, you've used tobacco, right? And like I've used tobacco before. So it's like, I can imagine it uplifting people's moods in a disaster situation too. So it might not even just be, I didn't realize that until reading this book, that like it's not just smokers who would view that as currency. It might just be like in an environment of destruction, any sort of little pleasure or vice, probably like alcohol would be viewed somewhat similarly yeah except that tobacco you can kind of work better yeah that's the than, thing with tobacco yeah. it's like it can calm you down a little bit and make while you feel good while you can still be productive yeah right which is probably the main reason it's such a dangerous drug it's like it almost <laughs> enhances your work and it's almost like caffeine without the like craziness that comes along with it well pure nicotine is actually one of the cleanest drugs that we know of or that yeah. we have yeah. right if you can get pure nicotine and take that as a like supplement for work it's a really good stimulant and, and really good focusing and you don't get the tar because from smoking you don't get all the bad parts you don't get the tar the burnt stuff like that's why the kind of like the vaporizers are there's still oh, yeah. problems with them because yeah. you're still like inhaling something hot and there's whatever's in the vapor but that's part of why there's so much less damaging than cigarettes right you don't have all the other nasty shit that goes with them so it was just this cool to really, see this was really interesting right and he's got this line in here about how they inflated so much in value yeah so before the war a pack of kinchi cigarettes cost eight sen when the war started an additional tax of seven sen was imposed boosting the price to 15 sen later the price rose to 23 sen and before the war was over the price had soared to 35 sen cigarettes were now worth more than money so i was not the only one who smoked a few puffs and then put a cigarette away to smoke again in the ruins of Hiroshima, money was valueless, and cigarettes took over as a medium of exchange. These 35-cent cigarettes will now bring 300 to 500-cent in Hiroshima. Wild. So that kind of lends some credence to the idea that, like, probably as part of your emergency preparedness kit, maybe buy yeah. Do you sell cigarettes on Amazon? No. Definitely not. <laughs> Too bad we can't use our affiliate link. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> uh, just <laughs> we're getting an affiliate deal with the uh, duty-free counters. Uh, like <laughs> JFK. Yeah, people, all these like non-smokers are now buying cigarettes, buying cigarettes. stock up yeah. because of us. Exactly. <laughs> well, hey, if you're a non-smoker, you get even more bang for your buck because you won't be tempted to, yeah. you know, use your own supply. Right? That's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I guess the last thing that is worth touching on is what happens when the American soldiers show up. Uh, he only keeps the diary for two months. It ends at the end of September, started beginning of August, the first bomb. And towards the end of September, American military starts showing up and, you know, occupying Hiroshima and also doing research on, you know, what happened when they dropped the bomb. So uh, actually, you want to read this section because <laughs> it's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, it's a fun part. Uh, so this is when the soldiers arrive. He goes, screwing up my courage. I said to them in English, how are you? In answer, one of the officers offered me a cigarette. Timidly, I accepted it, and he lit it for me before lighting one for himself. The cigarette had a pleasing smell, and the big red circle on his cigarette pack impressed me. We toured the hospital, and I tried to show them everything I could, despite my weakness. 
After we had finished looking around and returned to the entrance of the hospital, they shook hands with me and by way of a parting said in Japanese, konnichiwa, instead of sayonara. Those who were standing around burst out laughing because konnichiwa is a Japanese greeting similar to good afternoon in English. I laughed too and the young officers laughed with me. They got in their truck with big smiles on their faces and waved until they were out of sight. I had just remembered that when the Americans came today, I greeted them with a goodbye instead of the how are you I sprung on them later. The joke was on me. <laughs> <laughs> but it highlights pretty fun. just yeah. how quickly they could turn from hating American enemies to getting along with them and kind of enjoying their company. He, in the postscript, which he wrote, I guess, in April, uh, so much later after you know they had, he had finished writing the initial diary, he talks about how all these American scientists came over and were working with him yeah. on studying the dead, studying what happened with the radiation sickness. And, you know, one of the things he says is that when I think of the kindness of these people, I think one can overlook thoughts of revenge. And even at this moment, I feel something warm in my heart when I recall those days and those friends. It's a very fast shift. Yep. Well, and I think one thing that's really interesting that I think about whenever reading about like World War II related things is kind of how quickly the reconstruction happened, both in Germany, reconstruction and rehabilitation happened in Germany and in Japan, where obviously reconstruction of like buildings and stuff took, you know, that can be done. But reconstruction of mines is the very interesting thing. Because if you think about it, like Germany was a country of Nazis. And like, not even 10 years later, what like West Germany was a maybe 10, maybe it's like 15 years later, West Germany was like somewhat of an economic powerhouse and an American ally. Yeah. And like a very like sort of liberal democracy kind of environment. And obviously a lot of people were still alive who had been there from the Nazi era. So somehow you'd kind of been able to shift minds. And it's the same thing it seems like in Japan where, yeah, the war ended and then they were working side by side with Americans. And I mean, you've been to Japan. It's such a strong pro-American sentiment there. Yeah. In a way that's even greater than in, in America. Yeah. Well, it definitely no animosity. Right. right. Well, I went to Hiroshima and I went to like these, a couple that was there for two days. So I went to a couple of these like very small like bars where the owner was the bartender and it was like an old woman. And I mean, you know, she couldn't speak English that well. We were actually communicating by pointing at this book that she had oh, that cool. was basically like in Japanese and in English. We were still able to have a conversation, which was pretty cool. And um, she knew like a ton of things about America. She was asking about like Washington, D.C. and New York and like all these different questions about them. And like she'd never been to the U.S., but she'd heard a lot about it. And there was no animosity whatsoever. She was just, like very curious. And she was saying like, oh, we get visitors here all the time. And she named all these towns from the U.S where she'd met people from and she knew a lot about american culture like pop culture even <laughs> yeah it's just very cool to like see that in hiroshima right like you would think of all places in japan hiroshima and nagasaki would be like potentially some resentment against yeah. americans but i didn't get that vibe at all it was the same thing in vietnam honestly like you'd expect because that was even later yeah. and that was honestly in some ways they have even more reason for animosity yeah. because we yep. just sort of flew in and we're like we're fixing this well, and, right. had, and it wasn't like in japan at least we were attacked and then we went in whereas in vietnam it wasn't like you know it wasn't like they came to america and did like a, a <laughs> yeah. massive attack and then we retaliated right it's right. like yeah so you're right like from that standpoint they probably have even more reason but you know there too no really sense of hostility and on the flip side too if you go to pearl harbor right there's a lot of japanese people who live in hawaii yeah. right yeah, there are it's very common you know you don't really feel any sense of animosity towards them right either. exactly so it's very cool how like humans can kind of like not i don't want to say get over it that's not what i'm trying to say but like kind of i mean yeah but they can kind of like um 
they can lose those warlike feelings pretty quickly. Well, and especially, you know, in the other direction too, where it's like we were fighting, you know, on the same side as the USSR. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, now that's the major conflict. So although that was starting to happen during the war. Okay. So that was in the Churchill book a lot where both the US and the UK realized that as like dirt, while we were still allies with them, we realized that this was going to be the next conflict oh. because there were like a lot of things coming apart in the Alliance while the war was still going on. Got it. And they all sort of started realizing that like whoever got to Berlin first was going to be very influential. And uh, it became almost like a race to get to Berlin. Um, yeah, it was that that war was like basically the Cold War was basically started during World War Two. Like they all knew it. And especially once we used the A-bomb, yeah. then it became even bigger because uh, the Soviets didn't have that yet. And supposedly we were all sharing technologies. So even the British were pretty pissed off that we didn't tell them about the A-bomb until we used it. I think the British strongly suspected because they had their own program too. So they strongly suspected that the US had their own program, but they didn't know we had already finished it. <laughs> like, Got it. Yeah. So we didn't tell anyone we had it before we used it. No one knew. Well, I mean, I wonder how sure we were. That it would work? That it would work. Oh, yeah. Good question. I mean, they must have tested it, though. They must have been testing it out in Guam, or not like Guam, but those Pacific Islands. They tested, I don't know where the first one was, but they definitely tested it before. Yeah. Yeah. So they must have been fairly sure it would work. But I also wonder how much of it was uh, like, well, I hope this goes well. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, the only other thing from the book that I think was right at the end where someone told him he should sue the country. No, it was the American soldiers, right? Because they they were talking about that. They asked him how he felt about the war and its results. And this, I think, was such an interesting stark contrast where the American soldiers were, like you said, they're saying, no, I'd sue the country, right? If I were you, yeah. If I were you, I would hate them, right? I would have so much animosity. And from his perspective, he like couldn't wrap his mind around what sue the country means. Because I do think in Japan, and not just Japan, probably, but in some other countries, like we were talking about with Israel as well, you probably, your sense of self is tied up to the country in a lot more ways than it is here. Yeah. At least, I, I don't want to speak for everybody here, but at least for most people here. Yeah. You're not like, yeah, you are American. You know, that is your part of your identity. But suing the country is definitely within the realm of possibility. <laughs> like it doesn't feel because to him, the way he was reacting to that statement is almost like someone asked him to sue himself. Right. Like, then you would react like, what? Like, what does that even mean? Like, if I was like, Nat, you should sue yourself. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> right. So that's that's what I took, at least from his reaction, because he was like repeating it over and over, trying to comprehend what it could possibly mean. Well, and I think yeah. it just also highlights that loyalty where there's points earlier in the book where they think the hospital is going to be attacked and he starts to go and hide. And then he says, like, no, you know what? I should die by my patients. Yeah. Right. It's like my patients can't go to the basement and hide. So I shouldn't go to the basement. And hide yeah. either. And so he goes back upstairs yeah. right, and stands by them when he thinks they're going to get bombed. Right. Which is really skin in the game. Really impressive amount of honor, loyalty, everything. And I think that's what we're seeing again here is, yeah. you know, there's a lot of good things about the American individual mindset. But, you know, there's something that gets lost yeah. if you don't have that blind loyalty to something. And it's easy to criticize blind loyalty, but there's also something romantic and impressive right. about it where it's like, no, you know, we love our country so much that we, even though all this terrible stuff happened like we still love it and respect it and don't blame it or we were part of that we were part of it too yeah so that was a i thought that was interesting that he had it in there to highlight that mindset difference yeah it was pretty interesting 
This de- book definitely makes you think. It does. I'm glad you suggested it. This was very different from a lot of the other ones we've done, which was actually our challenge for these next couple books was to do something a little different from what we've been doing. Though there's no shortage of good books out there. No shortage so, of good which books. Is good. So. Do you ever find that this is this might be tangent number one oh, of the episode? Actually. Yeah, this is a very low tangent episode. Yeah. I find it very uh, encouraging that pretty much the more books I read, the more books get added to my list of to read. It's very encouraging because if it was the opposite, it's like on one hand, it could be very depressing because it's like you're never going to read all the books that you want to read in your life. But on the other hand, it's like it means you're never going to run out of stuff to read right. either. So, well, I think my Amazon wish list is 300 some books long. Yeah. I believe it. And so I go and you know, I look at it and I'm like, man, if I read one book a week, it would still take me six years. The problem is you're adding. Exactly. But you're adding as you go because so, you'll read a recommendation like someone will mention a book in another book. Or someone, you'll be talking to someone about a book and another book will come up. Well, then you mentioned Churchill's biography. Yeah, then you're And just, now I'm like, well, that's okay, so that's 4,500 words. Started, pages. Pages. Yeah. So, <laughs> I started reading that in 2015. But the thing is, there's three parts, right? So I, re- I read like one in 2015 okay. and I read one in... Actually, yeah, I didn't even plan it that way, but I read one in 2016 and one in 2017. Nice. But they're broken up pretty nicely by like parts of his life, basically. So it's not like a book you need. You don't need to read all 4,500 pages straight. You could, but you don't have to. <laughs> Can't imagine taking the notes out of that. Uh, yeah, your notes would be insane for that. Yeah. <laughs> I have like random notes in my phone. But I have never compiled because it's not on Kindle. I had like the physical copies. The books also look beautiful, so they're ones that I'd recommend buying the physical. It's worth getting physical versions. Yeah, uh, yeah but th- I did not take detailed notes on it. I find it hard to take like very detailed notes on biography in general because it's not it's not like work clean, right? Which would have like, has, like key takeaways. Key takeaways. Like, yeah, yeah. I guess like quotations and little snippets of information. Yeah, which honestly, I haven't read a biography in forever though. Mm. We were talking about the Steve Jobs one being yeah. one that we'll do at some point. Yeah, I want to go back and reread Jobs and the Musk one. Yeah, uh, those are probably my two one. favorites. I haven't read the Musk one. Yeah, we could do the Musk one. Is that um? Well, Steve, Ashley, Ashley Vance. Vance, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think we were talking about it. Yeah, we talked about it at some point. I mean, that's why Musk talks to Tim Urban and not Ashley Vance. Oh, it wasn't a, a favorable one? Uh, it seemed like he got annoyed after it came out because Vance has Well, you've read it, right? Yeah, I've read okay. it. It's not unfavorable, Okay, but there is... Uh, I don't know if you were telling me this, or I think Taylor Pearson might have mentioned it, that Buffett got pissed off about his biographer. Oh, the Snowball? The Snowball one, because one of the threads throughout Snowball is that Buffett's just doing all of this because he wasn't loved enough by his mother as a child. (laughs) And there's a little bit of that in the Musk book, too, which is that, like, Musk was always this weirdo growing up who, like, got bullied and didn't have friends, and that's why he feels like he has to conquer the world now. (laughs) Uh, So maybe he got annoyed about that. Yeah, some of that is like, okay, maybe the individual can't see that. But then on the other hand, some of it is just narrative fallacy, probably. Right? Where it's just like you're finding threads where there might not be. It's a very good biography, though. Okay. It's very interesting. It's worth reading. Yeah, yeah, it's worth reading. Yeah, we'll do that at some point. It is hard, though, because... It's one. Of, it's another one that feels premature, right? It's like Bezos' biography. Yeah, he's right in the middle of everything, right? Yeah, now, so. it's like right in the middle. Yeah. You're gonna have to write another one in three or four years, right? Tesla could either be like a incredible, you know, this could be like an incredible story of which it has much of it has not even been written yet. Yeah, or, I mean, it's gonna be an incredible story anyway, regardless. But it's like it could also like 20 years from now, it might be like, oh, remember that blip on the radar, Tesla? Right. It set the stage for this next thing that came up, or we might be like, Tesla's the biggest car company in the world, or biggest yeah. company in the world. You know, you just you don't know. Well, it's kind of like, I mean, with Bitcoin too. Exactly. Is that it's, you know, Bitcoin could be the crypto that becomes massive in the exactly. next 10 years, or, or it's just setting the stage, stage for Ripple or one of these, hopefully not Ripple. Hopefully not Ripple. Ripple. <laughs> that said, I do own some <laughs> to hedge against my own biases. Oh, okay. But yeah. Yeah. it's like, I hate this coin, but you know, just hold a little bit of it. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like a smart thing to do. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, exactly. So the story just hasn't been written yet. It would be like yeah. if someone tried to write like a history of crypto book right now, <laughs> which people are doing, right? <laughs> yeah, it'll, it'll sell, but yeah, it'll sell, but it won't have uh, staying power probably. No, well, as long as you keep updating it, I think. Actually, I shouldn't say that, but uh, <laughs> I don't. I don't want to announce something that okay, is, don't say it. doesn't yeah. want to be announced. Yeah. Uh, changing topics. <laughs> there are some good books about crypto out there. Uh, no, I can see there being good books about crypto, but a history, not a one. history book about yeah. crypto, because it's like it's like writing a history of the U.S. in like seventeen seventy eight or something. Well, like, actually, that would be interesting to read, right? Yeah. If somebody wrote a history of the U.S. in like seventeen ninety, where you've got Articles of Confederation, yeah. and then you've got Constitution, and you've That's got true, all the actually. like infighting initial stuff. Like, you probably have a lot more details. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Where somebody right writes a history now, yeah. and that's like the first chapter. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, that could be the whole book if you're that's really into point. the founding. That is a cool, very good point. Right. Yeah. So, so you, you get way more granular into those details. Yeah. That's a really good idea. Because actually, I mean, a book about Bitcoin getting started would be pretty cool. Yes. Since it was literally like. Surprise, there has been a movie, to be honest. I'm sure someone's working on it. Definitely got to be in the works. Yeah, there's like, got to be one in the works. It's such the whole plot is like laid out for you. You don't have to make anything up. Actually, it would be a pretty boring movie because <laughs> it would just be like people posting on a forum, right? <laughs> because it's not like you can you, you can't no, really create. I was saying they could use creative license for like who yeah. Satoshi is. They, they could do a fiction, version, like, right? Yeah. They couldn't really do an interesting documentary. You could do kind of. It'd be hard, right? Because it's all like people posting in forums and running software on the computer, right? What you mean they won't just be like typing like crazy other people? Hacker man. (laughs) My brother hates those scenes in movies. It's so funny. He's just like, this is not how it works. (laughs) Uh, No, I was thinking a really cool series could be like a series of movies, each with a different hypothesis on the Satoshi, uh, like who he is or what he is. Yeah. And then, like, so one could be just this guy. One could be this guy who got, you know, killed by the Illuminati. (laughs) One could be it's actually a group of people. One could be it's an AI. Yeah. Could be all sorts of things. I'm strongly in the Nick Zabo or, you know, DARPA-like government agency That's what someone else told me, too, that they think it could be an agency. That's doing it. Yeah, I would. I would. So what's what? Do you, why do you think that one? I know the Zabo like yeah, the Zabo one just makes sense yeah. because like if you read all of his old stuff and he's got all the interests and he's like working in academia at the time, right? Uh, the agency one is just like it makes me think of kind of like some of the CIA like mind control tests yeah. and things. Were where, we talking about this? Where we definitely need to do an episode on this? Yeah, that would be if we can find a good book on that. Someone that would be a cool episode to do. Someone recommended me one about the mind control experiments. I yeah. forget what it was. It's or, in, or DARPA, right? Doing yeah. experiments on internet and other like crazy like laser guns and shit, right? So I could see somebody in there saying like, oh, what if we like created currency. a currency that was, you know, like that's kind of interesting, right? You know what or funny? If, we were talking about the incompetent government stuff before. Yeah. What if exactly. someone like lost the key? Are. Well, what if somebody lost the key? <laughs> well, that, I mean, that's that would be hilarious, actually. And that's kind of the thing is what like of the ten biggest Bitcoin wallets, six or seven have not been accessed, right? So there's billions of dollars sitting on nobody, the sidelines. Yeah. It, it's hypothesized nobody has access to. Right. So it's possible. Yeah. Yeah. Sucks. Or that's actually how we're paying down the national debt. Yeah. <laughs> Get everyone to buy into this currency and then you just flash pay sale pay China with it yeah pay China with it uh, maybe that's why China keeps like trying to block yeah, the Bitcoin exactly. yeah exactly because they, they know what's going on they're like no you have to buy NEO <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, right, we're going to shift from there to our sponsors, our wonderful sponsors. Uh, (laughs) Coinbase.com. We should get them as a sponsor, actually. Yeah, that would be great. We talk about crypto like every episode. Let's hit them up. They have good money these days. It's true. I I mean, we've already got referral keys, so we could just use one of those. And we could get them to pay for... Well, we'll talk about this we'll offline. We'll talk about this offline, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> anybody, you anyone here works at Coinbase, hit us up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yes, so sponsors, very quickly. Perfect Keto, perfectketo.com slash think. They've got a fancy landing page for us now. Yep. Uh, sorry that page was down for a little bit, but looks great. You get 20% off everything you need to maintain, sustain, entertain, get into, one didn't end in aim, but <laughs> <laughs> a keto diet. Uh, Kettle and Fire Bone Broth, kettleandfire.com slash think. 20% off. 20% off as well. Uh, excellent supplements. Delicious. Getting some of your ancestral dietary needs, you know, collagen, bone marrowy things, great for cooking with, great for drinking. Uh, if you're a little sick, it's very helpful. I've been off this past week, so drinking some bone broth. Nice. Enjoying that. And then Four Sigmatic for all of your mushroom needs, foursigmatic.com slash think. That's how you had tried the hot cocoa? It's good, right? It's so good. It's delicious. I actually added some butter in there, too, to make it even Ooh, more rich. Yeah. It was so good. Now here's what you got to do. The hot cocoa with heavy cream. Ooh, that sounds even better. And that is keto-friendly. It is delicious. That sounds so good. There's basically no sugar in their hot cocoa. And then it's got, we've got two versions. There's like some stevia, I think, right? Because there's a little, little stevia. Bit of, a little t- stevia. It's not like sweet, but there's like a hint of sweetness. It's like dark chocolate almost, right? Yeah. Where it's very dark and rich and then a little spicy kick to it. Yeah. Yeah. That's their Cordyceps uh, hot chocolate. And they've also got a Rishi hot chocolate. Yeah. When I, had you the wanna, Rishi one. I had the Rishi one. Yeah. When yeah. you want to knock out. That was a night. Yeah. It was like uh, a dessert. It almost felt yeah. like a dessert. It's a great dessert. Honestly, like that's an amazing keto dessert is Rishi mushroom hot cocoa with heavy cream in it. That sounds Oof. so good. Delicious. Yeah. So good. Uh, but you can also get their mushroom coffee. Yeah, mushroom coffee is great. Which is sort of our go-to. Yeah. You can get the regular Cordyceps Elixir, uh, which is like a pre-workout with no caffeine. Uh, actually, on that note, if you want a pre-workout with caffeine, Perfect Keto also has one, uh, which is really good. And it's got a little uh, of the BHB salts, too. Oh, cool. So I've been using that before I work out as well. Um, yeah. You can get all of those at our madeyouthinkpodcast.com slash support page, as well as links to Amazon. Yep. Uh, if you buy anything at Amazon using our link, then we get a little kickback. You don't pay anything extra. It just helps support the podcast. Jeff Bezos makes a little bit less money, and that money goes to us, which he's, I think he's is He's the fair. richest man in the world. I think now. it's he's, fair. I think he's yeah. like, what, $113 billion? Something like that. Yeah. Which I never the, realized you could get to triple digit billions, but people have gotten there now. <laughs> so now, now it's happened. Nobody ha- I think he's the first. I think he's the first. Yeah. Although I... Um, Obviously, no. Well, yeah, there's the the shakes, right? No, uh, I was going to say if you convert like Rockefeller money and Carnegie money into modern day dollars, I think Carnegie was at like 200 something billion. Yeah. And Rockefeller and Andrew Mellon also. Yeah. Yeah. I always forget. He's like the stepfather of uh, Carnegie Mellon. Like we all think about Carnegie. We all say Carnegie, but yeah, not the Mellon part. Yeah, forget about the Mellon part. Yeah. He was also a super He rich was richer dude. than Andrew Carnegie, which I didn't realize. I believe that. Yeah. yeah. He basically started the whole banking system, yeah. right? So, yeah. So I think his, his was Morgan. somewhere around $300 billion in modern day dollars. So it's yeah. not like it's not like we've never seen wealth like this, but yeah. Bezos is definitely the richest person alive today. Yeah. So he can... You, well, he can the, afford to give us some of the money. What I was going to say is there's also the idea that there's Russian shakes. Oh, yeah. Who would be even richer. Type of, or the royal family in England. Yeah. If you uh, add up all their land holdings, probably. Landed yeah. building and gold. Like if you just stripped yeah. all the gold from all the buildings. Uh, I think some like Russian oligarchs, too. Or people who've got, you know, currently valued assets. <laughs> Davis is winning. Yeah. So I think he can afford to give us 4% affiliate money i think from yeah. the link yeah it won't, it won't hurt him too much it won't don't feel him. too bad and it won't affect you because you pay the same price exactly you pay the so. same price you just help us out yeah so uh you know go buy a new computer 
<laughs> some photography equipment. new car yeah photography equipment <laughs> like uh you can check out if you want to start your own podcast about thinking about stuff oh, yeah you can read my article on how to start a podcast if you just google start podcast not elias and you'll find it it's a really good article uh, but most importantly then you can you know buy like 500 dollars of recording <laughs> equipment with the made you think link and uh that'll help keep this show going yeah um let's see anything else sign up for the email list email list is good leave a review on itunes or anywhere else keep tweeting at us we love that we will eventually do that drinking game heuristic uh, or heuristic based. Yeah, that was, that was game. my favorite tweet I got. That was last a great week. tweet. Yeah. <laughs> so somebody tweeted at us and said, every time you say heuristic, take a shot. <laughs> I don't think we said it this episode. No, this was less was less no psyche heuristic. episode. This yeah. would have been a bad episode to do it on. So or a good episode to do it on. We could say we did it. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if we did it during like anti fragile, we would have been screwed. Yeah, that or was all Charlie Munger yeah. or, or influence. <laughs> yeah. Bad news. Yeah, we'd be screwed. Um, all right. Yeah. All right. I think, I think that's it. That's it. Yeah. Thank until... you all for joining us again and we'll see you next week. Yeah. See you next week.